This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Nicole Doolin. On the web at NicoleDoolin.com. Mall Flanders by Daniel Defoe. Section 11. I was now a single person again, as I may call myself. I was loosed from all the obligations either of wedlock or mistresship in the world, except my husband, the linen-draper, whom, I having not now heard from in almost fifteen years, nobody could blame me for thinking myself entirely freed from, seeing also he had at his going away told me that if I did not hear frequently from him, I should conclude he was dead, and I might freely marry again to whom I pleased. I now began to cast up my accounts. I had by many letters and much importunity, and with the intercession of my mother, too, had a second return of some goods from my brother, as I now call him, in Virginia, to make up the damage of the cargo I brought away with me, and this, too, was upon the condition of my sealing a general release to him, and to send it him by his correspondent at Bristol, which, though I thought hard of, Yet I was obliged to promise to do. However, I managed so well in this case that I got my goods away before the release was signed. And then I always found something or other to say to evade the thing, and to put off the signing it at all, till at length I pretended I must write to my brother, and have his answer before I could do it. Including this recruit, and before I got the last fifty pounds, I found my strength to amount put all together, to about four hundred pounds, so that with that I had about four hundred and fifty pounds. I had saved above one hundred pounds more. But I met with a disaster with that, which was this, that a goldsmith in whose hands I had trusted it broke. So I lost seventy pounds of my money, the man's composition not making above thirty pounds out of his one hundred pounds. I had a little plate, but not much, and was well enough stocked with clothes and linen. With this stock I had the world to begin again. But you are to consider that I was not now the same woman as when I lived at Redriff, for, first of all, I was near twenty years older, and did not look the better for my age, nor for my rambles to Virginia and back again. And though I omitted nothing that might set me out to advantage, except painting, for that I never stooped to, and had pride enough to think I did not want it, yet there would always be some different scene between five and twenty and two and forty. I cast about innumerable ways for my future state of life, and began to consider very seriously what I should do. But nothing offered. I took care to make the world take me for something more than I was, and had it given out that I was a fortune, and that my estate was in my own hands, the last of which was very true, the first of it was as above. I had no acquaintance which was one of my worst misfortunes, and the consequence of that was I had no adviser, at least one who could assist and advise together, and, above all, I had nobody to whom I could in confidence commit the secret of my circumstances to, and could depend upon for their secrecy and fidelity, and I found by experience that to be friendless in the worst condition, next to being in want, that a woman can be reduced to, I say a woman, because tis evident men can be their own advisers, and their own directors, and know how to work themselves out of difficulties and into business better than women. 
But if a woman has no friend to communicate her affairs to, and to advise and assist her, tis ten to one but she is undone. Nay, and the more money she has, the more danger she is in of being wronged and deceived. And this was my case in the affair of the one hundred pounds which I left in the hands of the goldsmith, as above, whose credit, it seems, was upon the ebb before. But I, that had no knowledge of things and nobody to consult with, knew nothing of it, and so lost my money. In the next place, when a woman is thus left desolate and void of counsel, she is just like a bag of money or a jewel dropped on the highway, which is a prey to the next comer. If a man of virtue and upright principles happens to find it, he will have it cried, and the owner may come to hear of it again. But how many times shall such a thing fall into hands that will make no scruple of seizing it for their own, to once that it shall come into good hands? This was evidently my case, for I was now a loose, unguided creature, and had no help, no assistance, no guide for my conduct. I knew what I aimed at and what I wanted, but knew nothing how to pursue the end by direct means. I wanted to be placed in a settled state of living, and had I happened to meet with a sober, good husband, I should have been as faithful and true a wife to him as virtue itself could have formed. If I had been otherwise, the vice came in always at the door of necessity, not at the door of inclination. And I understood too well by the want of it what the value of a settled life was to do anything to forfeit the felicity of it. Nay, I should have made the better wife for all the difficulties I had passed through by a great deal. Nor did I, in any of the times that I had been a wife, given my husband's the least uneasiness on account of my behavior. But all this was nothing. I found no encouraging prospect. I waited. I lived regularly and with as much frugality as became my circumstances. But nothing offered, nothing presented, and the main stock wasted apace. What to do I knew not. The terror of approaching poverty lay hard upon my spirits. I had some money, but where to place it I knew not. Nor would the interest of it maintain me, at least not in London. At length a new scene opened— there was in the house where I lodged a north-country woman that went for a gentlewoman, and nothing was more frequent in her discourse than her account of the cheapness of provisions and the easy way of living in her country. How plentiful and how cheap everything was, what good company they kept and the like, till at last I told her. She almost tempted me to go and live in her country, for I that was a widow, though I had sufficient to live on, yet had no way of increasing it, and that I found I could not live here under one hundred pounds a year, unless I kept no company, no servant, made no appearance, and buried myself in privacy, as if I was obliged to it by necessity. I should have observed that she was always made to believe, as everybody else was, that I was a great fortune, or at least that I had three or four thousand pounds, if not more, and all in my own hands. And she was mighty sweet upon me, when she thought me inclined in the least to go into her country. She said she had a sister lived near Liverpool, that her brother was a considerable gentleman there, and had a great estate also in Ireland, that she would go down there in about two months, and if I would give her my company thither, 
I should be as welcome as herself for a month or more as I pleased, till I should see how I liked the country, and if I thought fit to live there, she would undertake they would take care, though they did not entertain lodgers themselves. They would recommend me to some agreeable family, where I should be placed to my content. If this woman had known my real circumstances, she would never have laid so many snares, and taken so many weary steps to catch a poor desolate creature that was good for little when it was caught. And indeed I, whose case was almost desperate, and thought I could not be much worse, was not very anxious about what might befall me, provided they did me no personal injury. So I suffered myself, though not without a great deal of invitation and great professions of sincere friendship and real kindness. I say I suffered myself to be prevailed upon to go with her, and accordingly I packed up my baggage and put myself in a posture for a journey, though I did not absolutely know whither I was to go. And now I found myself in great distress. What little I had in the world was all in money, except as before, a little plate, some linen, and my clothes. As for my household stuff, I had little or none, for I had lived always in lodgings, but I had not one friend in the world with whom to trust that little I had, or to direct me how to dispose of it. And this perplexed me night and day. I thought of the bank and of the other companies in London, but I had no friend to commit the management of it to, and keep and carry about with me bank bills, tallies, orders, and such things. I looked upon it as unsafe, that if they were lost, my money was lost. And then I was undone, and, on the other hand, I might be robbed and perhaps murdered in a strange place for them. This perplexed me strangely, and what to do I knew not. It came in my thoughts one morning that I would go to the bank myself, where I had often been to receive the interest of some bills I had, which had interest payable on them, and where I found a clerk to whom I applied myself, very honest and just to me, and particularly so fair one time that when I had mistold my money— and taken less than my due, and was coming away, he set me to rights, and gave me the rest, which he might have put into his own pocket. I went to him and represented my case very plainly, and asked if he would trouble himself to be my adviser, who was a poor, friendless widow, and knew not what to do. He told me if I desired his opinion of anything within the reach of his business, he would do his endeavour that I should not be wronged, but that he would also helped me to a good sober person, who was a grave man of his acquaintance, who was a clerk in such business too, though not in their house, whose judgment was good, and whose honesty I might depend upon. For, added he, I will answer for him, and for every step he takes. If he wrongs you, madam, of one farthing, it shall lie at my door. I will make it good. And he delights to assist people in such cases. He does it as an act of charity. I was a little at a stand in this discourse, but after some pause I told him I had rather have depended upon him, because I had found him honest, but if that could not be, I would take his recommendation sooner than any one else's. I dare say, madam, says he, that you will be as well satisfied with my friend as with me, and he is thoroughly able to assist you, which I am not. It seems he had his hands full of the business of the bank, 
and had engaged to meddle with no other business than that of his office, which I heard afterwards, but did not understand then. He added that his friend should take nothing of me for his advice or assistance, and this indeed encouraged me very much. He appointed the same evening, after the bank was shut and business over, for me to meet him and his friend, and indeed as soon as I saw his friend, and he began but to talk of the affair, I was fully satisfied that I had a very honest man to deal with. His countenance spoke it, and his character, as I heard afterwards, was everywhere so good that I had no room for any more doubts upon me. After the first meeting, in which I only said what I had said before, we parted, and he appointed me to come the next day to him, telling me I might in the meantime satisfy myself of him by inquiry, which, however, I knew not how well to do, having no acquaintance myself. Accordingly I met him the next day, when I entered more freely with him into my case. I told him my circumstances at large, that I was a widow come over from America, perfectly desolate and friendless, that I had a little money, and but a little, and was almost distracted for fear of losing it, having no friend in the world to trust with the management of it, that I was going into the north of England to live cheap, that my stock might not waste, that I would willingly lodge my money in the bank, but that I durst not carry the bills about me, and the like, as above, and how to correspond with it, or with whom I knew not. He told me I might lodge the money in the bank as an account, and its being entered into the books would entitle me to the money at any time, and if I was in the north I might draw bills on the cashier and receive it when I would, but that then it would be esteemed as running cash, and the bank would give no interest for it, that I might buy stock with it, and so it would lie in store for me, but that then if I wanted to dispose of it, I must come up to town on purpose to transfer it, and even it would be with some difficulty I should receive the half-yearly dividend, unless I was here in person, or had some friend I could trust with having the stock in his name to do it for me, and that would have the same difficulty in it as before. And with that he looked hard at me and smiled a little. At last, says he, why do you not get a head steward, madam, that may take you and your money together into keeping? and then you would have the trouble taken off your hands. Aye, sir, and the money too, it may be, said I, for truly I find the hazard that way is as much as tis t'other way. But I remember I said secretly to myself, I wish you would ask me the question fairly. I would consider very seriously on it before I said no. He went on a good way with me, and I thought once or twice he was in earnest. But to my real affliction— I found at last he had a wife, but when he owned he had a wife, he shook his head and said with some concern that indeed he had a wife and no wife. I began to think he had been in the condition of my late lover, and that his wife had been distempered or lunatic or some such thing. However, we had not much more discourse at that time, but he told me he was in too much hurry of business then, but that if I would come home to his house after their business was over— he would by that time consider what might be done for me, to put my affairs in a posture of security. I told him I would come, and desired to know where he lived. He gave me a direction in writing, and when he gave it me, he read it to me and said, There tis, madam, if you dare trust yourself with me. Yes, sir, said I, 
I believe I may venture to trust you with myself, for you have a wife, you say, and I don't want a husband. Besides, I dare trust you with my money, which is all I have in the world, and if that were gone, I may trust myself anywhere. He said some things in jest that were very handsome and mannerly, and would have pleased me very well if they had been in earnest. But that passed over. I took the directions, and appointed to attend him at his house at seven o'clock the same evening. When I came, he made several proposals for my placing my money in the bank, in order to my having interest for it. But still some difficulty or other came in the way, which he objected as not safe, and I found such a sincere disinterested honesty in him, that I began to muse with myself, that I had certainly found the honest man I wanted, and that I could never put myself into better hands. So I told him with a great deal of frankness that I had never met with a man or woman yet that I could trust, or in whom I could think myself safe, but that I saw he was so disinterestedly concerned for my safety, that I said I would freely trust him with the management of that little I had, if he would accept to be steward for a poor widow that could give him no salary. He smiled, and, standing up with great respect, saluted me. He told me he could not but take it very kindly that I had so good an opinion of him, that he would not deceive me, that he would do anything in his power to serve me, and expect no salary, but that he could not by any means accept of a trust, that it might bring him to be suspected of self-interest, and that if I should die he might have disputes with my executors, which he should be very loath to encumber himself with. I told him if those were all his objections, I would soon remove them, and convince him that there was not the least room for any difficulty, for that first, as for suspecting him, if ever I should do it, now is the time to suspect him, and not put the trust into his hands, and whenever I did suspect him, he could but throw it up then, and refuse to go any further. Then, as to executors, I assured him I had no heirs nor any relations in England, and I should alter my condition before I died, and then his trust and trouble should cease together, which, however, I had no prospect of yet. But I told him if I died as I was, it should be all his own, and he would deserve it by being so faithful to me as I was satisfied he would be. He changed his countenance at this discourse, and asked me how I came to have so much good will for him, and, looking very much pleased, said he might very lawfully wish he was a single man for my sake. I smiled and told him, as he was not, my offer could have no design upon him in it, and to wish, as he did, was not to be allowed. Twas criminal to his wife. He told me I was wrong, for, says he, Madam, as I said before, I have a wife and no wife, and t'would be no sin to me to wish her hanged, if that were all. I know nothing of your circumstances that way, sir, said I. But it cannot be innocent to wish your wife dead. I tell you, says he again, she is a wife and no wife. You don't know what I am, or what she is. That's true, said I. Sir, I do not know what you are. But I believe you to be an honest man, and that's the cause of all my confidence in you. Well, well, says he. And so I am, I hope, too. But I am something else, too, madam, for, says he, 
to be plain with you. I am a, a cuckold, and she is a whore. He spoke it in a kind of jest, but it was with such an awkward smile that I perceived it was what struck very close to him, and he looked dismally when he said it. That alters the case indeed, sir, said I. As to that part you were speaking of, but a cuckold, you know, may be an honest man. It does not alter that case at all. Besides, I think, said I, since your wife is so dishonest to you, you are too honest to her to own her for your wife. But that, said I, is what I have nothing to do with. Nay, says he, do not think to clear my hands of her, for to be plain with you, madam, added he, I am no contented cuckold neither. On the other hand, I assure you it provokes me the highest degree. But I can't help myself. She that will be a whore will be a whore. I waved the discourse and began to talk of my business, but I found he could not have done with it. So I let him alone, and he went on to tell me all the circumstances of his case, too long to relate here, particularly that, having been out of England some time before he came to the post he was in, she had had two children in the meantime by an officer of the army, and that when he came to England, and upon her submission, took her again, and maintained her very well, yet she ran away from him with a linen-draper's apprentice, robbed him of what she could come at, and continued to live from him still. So that, madam, says he, she is a whore, not by necessity, which is the common bait of your sex, but by inclination, and for the sake of the vice. Well, I pitied him, and wished him well rid of her, and still would have talked of my business, but it would not do. At last he looked steadily at me. Look you, madam, says he, you came to ask advice of me, and I will serve you as faithfully as if you were my own sister. But I must turn the tables, since you oblige me to do it, and are so friendly to me. And I think I must ask advice of you. Tell me, what must a poor abused fellow do with a whore? What can I do to do myself justice upon her? Alas, sir, says I, tis a case too nice for me to advise in. But it seems she has run away from you. So you are rid of her fairly. What can you desire more? Ay, she is gone indeed, said he. But I am not clear of her for all that. That's true, says I. She may indeed run you into debt. But the law has furnished you with methods to prevent that also. You may cry her down, as they call it. No, no, says he. That is not the case neither. I have taken care of all that. Tis not that part that I speak of. But I would be rid of her so that I might marry again. Well, sir, says I, then you must divorce her. If you can prove what you say, you may certainly get that done. And then, I suppose, you are free. That's very tedious and expensive, says he. Why, says I, if you can get any woman you like to take your word, I suppose your wife would not dispute the liberty with you that she takes herself. Aye, says he, but t'would be hard to bring an honest woman to do that. And for the other sort, says he, I have had enough of her to meddle with any more whores. It occurred to me presently, I would have taken your word with all my heart if you had but asked me the question, but that was to myself. To him I replied, Why, you shut the door against any honest woman excepting you, for you condemn all that should venture upon you at once. 
and conclude that really a woman that takes you now can't be honest. Why, says he, I wish you would satisfy me that an honest woman would take me. I'd venture it, and then he turns short upon me. Will you take me, madam? That's not a fair question, says I. After what you have said, however, lest you should think I wait only for a recantation of it, I shall answer you plainly. No, not I. My business is of another kind with you, and I did not expect you would have turned my serious application to you, in my own distracted case, into a comedy. Why, madam, says he, my case is as distracted as yours can be, and I stand in as much need of advice as you do, for I think, if I have not relief somewhere, I shall be made myself, and I know not what course to take, I protest to you. Why, sir, says I, tis easy to give advice in your case, much easier than it is in mine. Speak, then, says he, I beg of you, for now you encourage me. Why, says I, if your case is so plain as you say it is, you may be legally divorced, and then you may find honest women enough to ask the question of fairly. The sex is not so scarce that you can want a wife. Well, then, said he, I am in earnest. I'll take your advice. But shall I ask you one question seriously beforehand? Any question, said I, but that you did before. No, that answer will not do, said he, for, in short, that is the question I shall ask. You may ask what questions you please, but you have my answer to that already, said I. Besides, sir, said I, can you think so ill of me that as I would give any answer to such a question beforehand? Can any woman alive believe you in earnest, or think you design anything but to banter her? Well, well, says he, I do not banter you. I am in earnest. Consider of it. But, sir, says I, a little gravely, I came to you about my own business. Beg of you to let me know what you will advise me to do. I will be prepared, says he, against you come again. Nay, says I, you have forbid my coming any more. Why so, said he, and looked a little surprised. Because, said I, you can't expect I should visit you on the account you talk of. Well, says he, you shall promise me to come again, however, and I will not say any more of it till I have gotten the divorce but I desire you will prepare to be better conditioned when that's done. For you shall be the woman, or I will not be divorced at all. Why, I owe it to your unlooked-for kindness, if it were to nothing else. But I have other reasons, too. He could not have said anything in the world that pleased me better. However, I knew that the way to secure him was to stand off while the thing was so remote, as it appeared to be, and that it was time enough to accept of it when he was able to perform it. So I said very respectfully to him, It was time enough to consider of these things when he was in a condition to talk of them. In the meantime, I told him I was going a great way from him, and he would find objects enough to please him better. We broke off here for the present, and he made me promise him to come again the next day. For his resolutions upon my own business— which, after some pressing, I did, though, had he seen farther into me, I wanted no pressing on that account. End of Section 11 Recorded by Nicole Doolin On the web at NicoleDoolin.com